There is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. How many of you ate too much? Would you raise your hand? Yeah. How many of you think the most spiritual thing we could do would be have Baptist nap time this afternoon? <laughs> oh, my lands. And uh, to all the ladies and maybe some of the men who cooked, God bless you. It was wonderful. Couldn't have been any better. And I don't know how on earth I'm supposed to preach after that, but it was great. And we've enjoyed the fellowship today and uh, most of all, the time feeding on the Word of God. And I'm grateful to have one more opportunity to speak to you from the Scriptures. Let's open our Bibles together again to 2 Peter, if you will. We come now to the last chapter of this little book. We have looked at chapter 1 and in the last hour at chapter 2. And now I bring you to the final thing that Peter wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing chapter. I'm not preaching the whole chapter, but let's just read a little bit. Look at verse 1. This second epistle, beloved. I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Would you do this before we read any further? Take your pen and underline the question in verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? He said he's coming. Everybody says he's coming. Where is he? Why hasn't Jesus come yet? How many of you know lots of people are asking that question right now? And frankly, it's not just the scoffers sometimes that ask it. Sometimes we ask it, Lord, where are you? And how much longer can this go on? And where is the promise of your coming? Look at verse 5. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Would you read verse 8 with me, church? Ready? But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And I love verse 9. Everybody put your eyes on 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein 
shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. I had you mark a question in verse 4. It is this question, where is the promise of his coming? Literally, why hasn't Jesus come yet? Now, let me point a couple of things out to you just by way of introduction. The first is, God answers the questions. Aren't you glad that God takes question marks and straightens them out and makes them exclamation points? Now, the Lord doesn't leave us wondering and worrying. He doesn't leave us in confusion. He answers the question, and I want to answer it for you in just a moment from these few verses. But I noticed something fascinating. Look down to verse 11 and verse 12. Do you see how he ends? I love this. He asks his own question. They ask a question of God, where are you? Why haven't you come yet? He turns it around and basically says to them, why aren't you living differently? Why hasn't your life been changed in light of the fact I'm getting ready to come? People say Jesus is, is preparing heaven for us. I do believe Jesus said I go to prepare a place for you. But I've heard people preach and teach. It's just taking him a long time to get it ready. Let me just tell you on the authority of the word of God. Any God that can speak and in six days make everything we've enjoyed can certainly in a moment of time create everything we're going to enjoy for all of eternity. I don't think the problem is that he is not prepared. I think the problem is that we are not prepared. Did you know that there are some 250 references in the New Testament to the second coming of Jesus? That's amazing. If you drove down an interstate highway, saw 250 billboards that all said the exact same thing, you'd almost get the idea somebody's trying to tell you something. When you weave the pages of Holy Scripture 250 times, Jesus said, I'm coming. I'm coming, you better get ready, I'm coming. And here's what's fascinating. Of the 250 times, at least 50 of those were written in these two letters of First and Second Peter. Isn't that amazing? It's almost as if Peter, who lived at the first coming of Christ, who heard the promise of the second coming of Christ, now lives every day consumed with this thought that any moment he's going to see Jesus face to face, that any second the Lord may return again. In fact, I believe the whole of Scripture has this expectancy and anticipation in it. Do you remember way back in the book of Genesis when, when God said to the woman that the seed of the woman would come? Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15. It's the first promise of Messiah in the whole Bible. The seed of the woman would come and would deliver them from their sins and would put down the serpent. That was the promise of Jesus coming. I believe that all through the Old Testament Scripture, people lived in that anticipation. Watch this. For 4,000 years, they lived between the promise and the fulfillment. Think about that just a minute. 4,000 years between Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15 and Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. For 4,000 years, they lived looking. I think every mama that had a little baby boy looked at that baby boy. Every Jewish mother wondered, could this be the one? Why do you think Eve, when she had Cain, said, I've gotten a man from the Lord? I think, I think she was hoping and praying this was the seed of the woman that would deliver them. We know Cain was a far cry from the Christ, wasn't he? 
And yet all of these mothers were looking and believing that the Savior would come. And every prophet that lifted his voice and declared and thundered forth, thus saith the Lord. What was every Old Testament prophet doing? He was pointing to the coming of Messiah. And then there was that glorious day. Oh, happy day. When the curtain lifted and the Son of the living God stepped onto the page of human history. Our God is always right on time. He's never early and he's never been late. And I want you to know what is true of the first coming is true of the second coming. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse number 36, that no one knows when he's coming. Nobody knows. For the record, if anybody tells you they know when he's coming, get as far away from them as you possibly can. Because nobody knows the day or the hour of our Lord's return, but here's what we do know. We know that Christ is is coming again, and we must be prepared for it. So let's return to the question, why has Jesus not come yet? How many of you would like to know the Bible reason why Jesus hasn't come yet? Wouldn't that be good so you can give an answer? I'm going to give you three answers, and they all come from the same passage. Everybody look at it. Here's the first answer in verse 8. There's an answer from heaven. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. I've marked in my Bible in verse 5, they are willingly ignorant. And in verse 8, we're not to be ignorant. We're living in an ignorant world. Amen to that? People don't know God. They don't know the truth. They don't know the Bible. They're ignorant. They're willingly ignorant. And God says to his people, don't you be ignorant. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Number one, write this down. You want to know why Jesus hasn't come? Here's an answer from heaven. The answer from heaven is this, that God's timetable is different from our timetable. We live in time, don't we? I know what time it is right now. I've got the clock on the wall and got my watch. I know what time it is. I know about what time I'm going to finish preaching today. And Some of you are saying, praise God. I'm glad he's got a time in mind. I, I live on a schedule. I travel all the time and, and uh, on and off airplanes and times matter. We live in time. But I want to remind you something about our God. Our God does not live in time. Time lives in God. Genesis, God created time. He's not bound by time and time constraints. Isaiah said his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Friends, his timetable is higher than our timetable because he is the eternal God. He lives in eternity. He sees the end from the beginning. He, he looks at time in one fell swoop. He's in the past, the present, and future all at the same time. That's why when Moses said, what, what's your name, Lord? I, I need to know your name. He said, just tell him I am sent you. He's always in the ever-present now. So God's timetable is different than ours. I've heard people try to take this verse. Uh, to use it almost like divine math, that this is an exact equation. One day with the Lord is a thousand years. A thousand years one day must mean that there's some mathematical equivalency here. Basically what the Lord is saying is that your time is different than his time and you can't tell time by his time clock because you can't see that right now. And so one reason we know the Lord has not yet come is that obviously it is not the time for him to come. But there is a time already set on God's calendar. As a matter of fact, look at verse number 7. He said, But the heavens and the earth which are now, would you mark this phrase, by the same word are kept in store. Somebody said, What's the Lord waiting on? Only one thing stands between us and eternity. Would you like to know what it is? God's word. There's going to come a moment that God's going to speak the word. The Father's going to look at the Son and say, It's time. <laughs> Jesus is going to say to the angels, 
strike up the chorus. Look, there's coming a moment when the word is given and the Lord comes. And I'm here to tell you this afternoon, it will be right on time. So there's an answer from heaven. Then look at verse number 9. This is a sobering thought. There's an answer from hell. Look at verse 9, please. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Would you like to know the second reason the Lord Jesus has not come yet? It's because He is giving people time to be saved. For the record, someday the last soul will be saved. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would be like to win the last person to Christ? And the moment they come to faith in Christ, the trumpet sounds. Wouldn't that be an exciting thing? I don't know when or where that will happen or who that will be, but someday the body of Christ will be complete, the bride will be made up, and the Lord is coming for His own. It's already on God's calendar, look, and the Lord is simply giving us a space to repent. Maybe instead of us getting so concerned about how quick we can get out of here, we ought to be thinking more about why God has left us here. The Lord wants people to be saved. Oh, that God would put in our hearts the same compassion and passion that Jesus has for sinners. Why did He come? To seek and to save that which is lost. Why has He left us? So that we would go after sinners. The Lord doesn't want anybody to be lost. He writes in Timothy that it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He'll have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God loves all people and Jesus died for every man. And even the people that frustrate you. Now let that sink in just a minute. Even the people you get annoyed with and angry with about their sin. Think of this. The God of glory does not want that person to go to hell. Hell wasn't made for them. It was made for the devil and his angels. I'm going to tell you what God's people right now. We need a little spiritual reset in our own hearts and minds so we can start seeing sinners like Jesus sees sinners and go after them with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The answer from hell is that the Lord doesn't want a single person to be lost. And if you don't believe me that this is the answer from hell, go with Jesus in Luke 16 to the very pit and the fires of hell and listen to that rich man say, please go tell my five brothers not to come here. I don't want them to come to this place of torment. Listen, you would not wish hell on your worst enemy. And Jesus doesn't want his worst enemies to go there. That's why he died, so they could be saved and spared from hell. So, in verse number Eight, there's an answer from heaven. In verse number 9, there's an answer from hell. But then please don't miss this because he continues the thought in verse 10 and following. There's an answer that is coming from your own heart. Look at verse number 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. In other words, everything around you is going to be gone someday. Think of that. What people live for is all going to burn up someday and be ash. But look, please, at verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. Please don't miss this question. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Would you write this down? The answer from heaven is it's not God's time. The answer from hell is the Lord wants to give people a space to repent and be saved. But the answer connected to our own heart is this, that God has more He's wanting to do in us before we meet Him. Ponder this just a moment. 
Did it ever dawn on you that God has extended this space of grace so that you and I will more thoroughly become the people He saved us to be so that when we meet Him at the judgment seat, we will be ready? What is it you don't want to meet God with someday in judgment? Then now you ought to bring that to Him in mercy. What is the thing that you don't want to stand before God and give an account for and know that that thing in your life grieved the Holy Spirit and hindered the work of God and held back the blessing of heaven? Then whatever that is, bring that to God and say, look at verse 11, Lord, I want to be holy and I want to be godly and I want to be the person you saved me to become. God doesn't just save you from something. God saved you for something. God didn't just save you to keep you out of hell. God saved you so that you'd become more like the lovely Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you what I've come to believe from my study of this passage. I actually believe God's people can hasten the coming of Christ. I believe that. I'll prove it to you. Look at verse number 12. He said, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Literally, hastening the day. Could it be that while we're here waiting on God, God is waiting on us? Could it be that it is our disobedience in our own personal walk with Jesus and our disobedience to get the gospel out and bring people to Christ that is the thing holding back that glorious event, the greatest event in the history of the world, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? I'll tell you this, nothing's going to stop him when he's ready to come, but I do believe this, we can get ourselves ready and we can help to get others ready for that moment when Jesus Christ comes again. Anybody in this room glad Jesus is coming again? Then what difference is it making in the way we live our lives? There's so much mental assent in churches where people nod their head and grunt an amen and say, we believe that, but it makes no practical difference in the way we live our lives. And I'm asking you, in just a very few moments, we're going to walk out those doors and go to our homes and return to our normal lives tomorrow. What difference will that day make on this day in your life? The reason Jesus has not yet come is because at this moment, Jesus is working in us and through us to get us ready for that day. Let's end where God ends. Go with me to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Would you please? Maybe the better question is not why has he not come. The better question would be why are we not getting more ready for Jesus to come. Look at the last page of scripture, Revelation 22. We've been in Genesis and we've been in Revelation. You can tell people in two days we preach the whole Bible, all right? Look at Revelation 22, verse 7. Jesus speaks and he says, Behold, I come quickly. Look at verse 12, and behold, I come quickly. And if that were not enough, look at verse 20. He which testifieth these things saith, surely I come quickly. May I ask, how many times does he have to say it before we actually act on it? As a boy growing up, if my mother said it once, I was supposed to listen. All you mothers out there say amen to that. And if she said it twice... I was really supposed to listen, and if she had to say it three times, it was too late to listen. How many of you understand what I'm talking about? When the Lord says three times on the last page of Scripture, I'm getting ready to come, don't you think maybe God's people ought to wake up and start living in the light of the return of Jesus Christ? Why is this not the all-consuming thought of every Christian? Why? 
Why do we not preach and live and witness and pray and study and raise our kids and do our business and conduct our lives with this dominating truth that any moment we're going to see Jesus face to face and kneel at His nail-pierced feet and be with Him for all eternity that any moment the opportunity we've been given on this earth will soon come to a close. Whatever you're going to do for God, friend, you better do it now because Jesus is coming quickly. A few years ago, we were still living in Knoxville Kids and I were sitting in the living room one day, and I don't know why, flipping through channels. We came across a documentary. You know you're getting old when you start liking documentaries. Did you know that? And we found a documentary on a bunch of penguins in Antarctica, 25,000 male penguins. It was 40 degrees below zero. It was a dead of winter. They had not had light for six months. Imagine that. No sunshine for six months. All the females now, they were smart enough. They'd all flown south for the winter. Doesn't that sound like us men? We're going to tough it out just to prove it can be done, you know. And they had stayed there through darkness, 40 degrees below zero. They were using night vision cameras as they were doing the documentary. And they showed this sea of penguins, 25,000 of them. And they're all shivering and shaking. And they're all huddled right together. And then, and then the cameras captured that glorious moment where the earth tilted on its axis just enough, and for the first time in months of darkness, the first rays of sunlight broke over the horizon. It was, it was powerful. And suddenly, boom, the first ray of sunlight hits those male penguins, 25,000 of them. And when it did, I noticed something. They were all standing facing the same direction. Now think about that, 25,000 penguins huddled together, but they're all facing towards the light. And at the very moment that I noticed it, the interviewer asked the scientist, he said, what are they all doing? What are they all waiting on? And I will never forget the man's answer. It was not a Christian thing, but oh, how it connected my thinking. He said, they were waiting on the coming of the dawn. Listen to me. We stand here at this moment in the midst of so much darkness all around us. But I'm going to tell you what God's people are waiting on. We're waiting on one thing. We're waiting on the coming of the dawn. We're waiting on a new day to dawn. And when will it come and how will it come? It will happen in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, when Jesus breaks the horizon and the day star. Everybody remember the day star, the first light of a new day, pierces the darkness of our world. And when that moment comes, it will all be worth it and it will be too late to do anything else we were supposed to do. God will call time. And it will all be over. Not long ago, I did a little study through the book of Revelation on our daily broadcast. I was reading one of my favorite authors, a man named John Walford. And in Walford's book, talking about the last days and the end time, the coming of Jesus... He put a little excerpt from an old writer named Joseph Seiss, a man that Walford enjoyed reading after. I can still remember the day I was sitting in my office reading it, and I, I was so moved by it, I sat there in my study and just wept reading the words of Joseph Seiss. They affected me so powerfully, I wrote them in the back of my Bible. When I get a little discouraged, I read them. May I share them with you? Joseph Seiss said, Fiction has painted the picture of a maiden whose lover left her for a voyage to the Holy Land, promising on his return to make her his beloved bride. And many told her that she would never see him again. 
that she believed his word. And evening by evening she went down to the lonely shore and kindled there a beacon light in sight of the roaring waves to hail and welcome the returning ship which was to bring again her betrothed. And by that watch fire she took her stand each night praying to the winds to hasten on the sluggish sails that he who was everything to her might come. Even so, that blessed Lord who has loved us unto death has gone away to the mysterious holy land of heaven, promising on his return to make us his happy and eternal bride. Now, some say, some say that he's gone forever and that here we shall never see him more. But his last word was, Yea, I come quickly. And on the dark and misty beach, sloping out into the eternal sea, each true believer stands by the love-lit fire, looking and waiting and praying and hoping for the fulfillment of his work in nothing gladder than in his pledge and promise and calling ever from the soul of sacred love, even so come Lord Jesus. And some of these nights, some of these nights while the world is busy with its gay frivolities and laughing at the maiden on the shore, a form shall rise over the surging waves as once on Galilee to vindicate forever all this watching and devotion and bring to the faithful and constant heart a joy and a glory and a triumph which nevermore shall end. And I want to say with John, even so come Lord Jesus. And I wonder, are you looking? Do you really love his appearing? I mean, do you really love his appearing? And are you living every day in light of the fact that any moment you may see Jesus? Would you bow your head with me and close your eyes right where you are for a moment? I'm going to do something a little different in this invitation. We'll not, we'll not have a song. But I want to ask you a couple of very pointed questions. One concerning you and one concerning others. Let's start with ourselves. It has to be personal. I'm not going to ask you to tell me what it is. But I'm going to ask, how many Christians in this room would say, Brother Scott, in the last couple of days as we've studied through this little book of 2 Peter, I've been reminded of some things and some things awakened in me. There is something in my life, some area of my life where I know some things need to be adjusted and some things need to grow and some things need to change, frankly, before I see Jesus. There's... There's some area of my life where I know I need God's help right now spiritually to be the person he saved me to be before I see him face to face. Preacher, I know an area like that. Pray for me. I want you to raise your hand with mine right now, would you please? Amen. Be specific about it. Let's turn it inside out now. How many of you are in this room and you say, Brother Scott, there's somebody I have on my mind. I can tell you their name. I can see their face. Somebody that either needs to be saved or needs to be brought back to the Lord. Somebody that needs to get right with God before the Lord returns. Before it's too late, while we still have opportunity. It could be a family member. It could be a friend, an acquaintance, a business person, a classmate. But you say, I know somebody that needs Jesus. That I'm praying for them to be saved or to get right with God before the Lord returns. Would you raise your hand, please, big and high in the air? Amen to that. Oh, may God work in them. Here's what we're going to do. 
Would you lift your head and look at me for a second? In a moment, I'm going to ask every man in this room to find another man to pray with. And I'm going to ask every lady to find another lady to pray with. And this wonderful series, these four meetings God has allowed us to have together, we're going to end it not with me talking to you, but with all of us talking to God. And here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask you in a moment to find a prayer partner. And before you pray, I want you to share two things with your prayer partner. Now, what you share is your business. And how, how much you share, your business. But I'm going to ask you to share with a fellow believer today, number one, one thing you're praying for for your own life. Look, friends, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. You may say to somebody, my prayer life, my prayer life's just really lacking. Help me pray. That's got to change. I've got to get back in the Bible again. I'm not the witness I ought to be. I don't know what it is, but some area of your life where you're praying God will give you a spiritual victory in these days, it will do you good to say it, to put it into words, and to express it. And then I want you to mention the name of one person you're praying for. I'll tell you, I'm praying for Mr. Hicks. He lives on our road. He's lost, as lost as he can be. I've been praying for him for some time. This week, I was home for a day, and I took a little run out our country road, and I was by myself, jogging along, and, and uh, sweating profusely, and a car pulled up and stopped next to me, and I turned and looked, and it was Mr. Hicks. And he rolled his window down, and he wanted to talk. And I said to him, I've been praying for you. And I know God's working on him. I could sense it. The Lord's opening that door. Help me pray for Mr. Hicks. Mr. Hicks needs to be saved. But there's a whole bunch of Mr. Hickses in the world. There's a bunch of them in this area. They're not at this meeting today, but you're getting ready to go see them in a few minutes and tomorrow and this week. And I want you to share the name of somebody you're praying for to be saved and ask that person, help me pray. Let's, let's agree together in prayer for the salvation of souls and the reclaiming of backsliders. And if you can't think of somebody, if you're in this room and you say, well, I don't have somebody like that, then just say to your prayer partner, I'm praying God will give me somebody. Help me pray God will give me somebody this week. That's a prayer God will answer. And for the next few moments, I want you to talk with one another about what God's speaking to you about from this meeting and from his word. And then I want the two of you to talk to God together. One of you can open the prayer. The other one can close the prayer. In a few minutes, after we've had a season of prayer, I'll, I'll close the whole season together. And we'll have our prayer and be on our way. But I think it'd be appropriate if we just talk to the Lord for a few moments. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.